morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, April 1st, we're studying Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 56. Jesus' passion intensifies. The events he has foretold begin to happen. His closest disciples fall asleep while he prays in sorrow. His betrayer comes to identify Jesus for those who arrest him. His disciples scatter. Jesus has known all of this would happen, and he continues willingly and resolutely, all for the salvation of sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Roy Askins. Pastor Askins is the managing editor of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's good to be here today. As we get started this morning, Pastor Askins, let's talk a little bit about context. We're in Holy Week. This is Monday, Thursday. Where are we in the account? What do we need to know from from Passion Week and the whole of Matthew's Gospel to help us into the text today. Well, it's just fascinating. It's almost like you planned it that we would end up on Maundy Thursday with this very text. Praise the Lord. This is great. Um, so where we're at here in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus has uh, instituted the Lord's Supper, uh, and after instituting the Lord's Supper, he and his disciples have uh, sung a hymn, which is something Jesus and his disciples did, I guess, regularly and then went out to the Mount of Olives. And it's actually en route, or perhaps there in the Mount of Olives, that Jesus actually tells the disciples, uh, you will all fall away because of me this night. So he's actually here predicting that they will fall away. And Peter, of course, says, no, no, I will be there. You know, I will I will never fall away. And Jesus, of course, predicts that, that Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows. And so we have, uh, as our context here, right at the very beginning before our reading starts, these disciples eager and ready to, to, to hang out with Jesus and stay with Jesus regardless of what comes. Uh, and yet, as we all know in the story uh, coming up, uh, that they will flee from him. That's going to be the last bit of our text today is all the disciples fleeing from him. And then Peter later on this very night uh, betraying Jesus. Now, in the context of Matthew, this text has a number of wonderful themes that find expression in our reading today. And one of them is, we're going to see this come up again and again, uh, fulfillment, and fulfillment in a couple of different ways. Uh, we're going to see Jesus talking about fulfilling the scriptures. Um, this is a prominent theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus throughout his life is fulfilling the scriptures through his suffering and death, is fulfilling the scriptures, fulfilling all the prophets foretold that he would do. Um, so this is a, a theme that we're going to see as the sheep, the, the, the shepherd is, is struck and the sheep scatter as the disciples flee away. Of course, this is uh, foretold in scriptures. Um, we also see the fulfillment of Jesus' own predictions. Uh, Jesus, a number of times, tells the disciples that he's going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and will suffer and die. And of course, uh, Peter famously said, uh, chastise the Lord for saying this. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But we see, of course, all of this. Uh, starting to come to its final fulfillment here as Jesus is arrested uh, at the hand of the betrayer, Judas. Uh, the other theme we see here that's pretty wonderful, actually, is a fantastic Christology. We see this dynamic between 
uh, are within the two natures of Christ, right? Uh, the, the divine nature of Christ completely and totally committed to God's will, uh, while at the same time we see the human nature of Christ that struggles and trembles at the task before him. And how uh, even as he trembles, Christ remains adamant in pursuing the task that the Lord has set out before him to accomplish. So these are kind of the themes we're going to see weaving through the text and how this text fits within the overall context of the rest of Matthew. The, the theme of Christology is one I think we're going to wrestle with as we get into that section, particularly Jesus' prayer there in Gethsemane and, and what he prays and... and, and like you said, the the way that the the human nature in Christ and the divine nature in Christ are, are working in concert, and yet you've got this prayer, mm-hmm. Father, if there's another way, yeah, we're we're going to wrestle with that. And then the the Thank theme you. of the fulfillment is is one that, and I I never really thought about this until you laid it out like that, where you put those two things together: the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures on the one hand, and the fulfillment of Jesus' own words on the other. And I think putting those side by side is another example of, of seeing the the authority of Jesus' words. This is this has been a theme in Matthew's gospel, to see that Jesus' words, his, his teaching has authority, and to see him at the same time fulfilling the Word of God recorded in the Old Testament and his own words, at least in my mind, invites a, a comparison. Well, what does that say about what Jesus' words are? That, that his Indeed. words are the, the very word of God, which is something we've seen, but I've never really considered it in that light with the the fulfillment theme. So I don't know if you were intending that, Pastor Askins, but that, that's something that I, I'm seeing. Oh, it's fantastic. And and you're exactly right. This is, um, well, I mean, as we say, you know, God wrote the entire scriptures, all the New Testament. And so it should not come as a surprise to us that the one who reveals himself in the Old Testament uh, also knows and reveals himself in the New Testament in a similar way and fulfills uh, both ends of these these uh, predictions, uh, both ends of these scriptures that point to the work that he's going to do on the cross. So um, I didn't intend for it to come out that way, but I'm glad it was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So let's let's go ahead and take a look at the text. We've got a good chunk of text to, to consider this this morning. So again, we're in Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. 
And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 56. Pastor Askins, as we get started, then the first scene that we've got today is Jesus praying in Gethsemane. Set the scene for us geographically. Where is Gethsemane? What do we know about it? Sure. So I I don't know how many of our readers are reading along in the Lutheran Study Bible, but I want to point out, for those of you who are, there's an absolutely fantastic map on page 1690, uh, which I believe is in Mark, um, that lays out kind of the different events of Holy Week and where Jesus was during these events. And, uh, and it really gives a, a great image of where the Mount of Olives is in relation to, to Jerusalem. So um, during, his, during the institution of the Lord's Supper, of course, he's in Jerusalem. And then he leaves Jerusalem and goes out to the Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem. And there in the Mount of Olives, there was a place called Gethsemane. Now, uh, Gethsemane uh, likely comes from a Hebrew word referring to olive presses. And so it wasn't really so much a garden as perhaps actually an olive orchard or an actual olive press uh, where the the olives might have been pressed to make oil and to do work. Uh, And it was a place, uh, as we look at the rest of the, the Gospels, where Jesus met frequently with his disciples. I mean, it's how Judas knew where to go in order to betray Jesus. And so this was a place he would frequent uh, with his disciples for prayer and teaching. And it's there, like I said, to the east of Jerusalem on the Mount, on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus has been here before. He brings his disciples. He, He particularly takes Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. Is there some significance to those three going with Jesus a bit farther by themselves? Maybe, maybe not. You know, I'm not entirely sure here. As I was looking at this, of course, what immediately pops into mind is the Mount of Transfiguration. And these are the three disciples that show up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you, of course, have Peter being, uh, you know, uh, kind of... uh, excited to get in and talk and and say things and do things. You know, he's the one that confesses who Jesus is. And then three or four verses later tells Jesus he won't suffer and die. So you you have this regular interaction. Um, The readers hear more uh, about Peter in the gospel of Matthew than perhaps other uh, disciples. And then of course you have the sons of Zebedee who are the two that ask Jesus uh, to sit on his right and on his left hand. Uh, And of course, Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup and so forth and so on? And then he says, well, this is not for me to decide. Uh, So, of course, you have uh, those sort of interactions. um, But I don't necessarily think that uh, this puts these three disciples in a different place than the other disciples. Um, In the end, 
what ultimately ends up happening is all the disciples, all 11 of them who are remaining at this point, uh, flee and leave Jesus alone to face uh, suffering and death. Um, and even afterwards in, in Acts and, and, so, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, you don't see any sort of special place given necessarily to the sons of Zebedee uh, or even really particularly to Peter. I mean, James becomes the bishop in Rome, right? Um, and so I, I don't necessarily think that there's a, a special status, but I do think there might be a connection between uh, the transfiguration and then uh, Jesus taking these disciples along. Um, maybe perhaps they are the ones that saw him transfigured in glory, and now they're actually going to see him in deep sorrow and suffering as he reflects and prepares for uh, what he's about to do. Uh, maybe that's the connection. I, I think you I think you're onto something there, particularly when you look at the text right before the Transfiguration, at the end of the Transfiguration comes in Matthew chapter 17 at the first verse. But the verse right before it, at the end of chapter 16, Jesus Jesus says these words. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And there's there's a number of ways that that verse gets gets interpreted. One of those is that, well, Jesus is talking about what happens in his transfiguration, that Peter, James, and John, that's some of those standing here, they don't die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They see Jesus in his glory there on the mountain. And if if that's a one way of looking at that verse, and that's correct, then I think there's a, a good comparison to be made here that those same three, there's the sum of those standing here will not taste death. What are they doing? They're seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom again. But mm-hmm. but here Jesus is bringing the kingdom through suffering, which is the way that he's he's been pointing them all along, right? That that right. is, it is his death on the cross. That's how he's going to bring the kingdom. And so I, I think that's I think that's a good a good comparison to make. So, well, and, and ahead, the kingdom of God is a regular theme in in the Gospel of Matthew, anyways. I mean, you talk about Jesus, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this is a regular theme. You see this coming to fruition, particularly in his suffering and death, and then you see uh, these three disciples there along with him. I think, I actually the the uh, text there at the end of sixteen hadn't occurred to me. So that's a great insight. So so then Jesus has these three with him. He takes them along. He, he tells them, my soul is sorrowful, even to death, remain here, watch with me. We know later that he wants them to pray. Take us into, and this is where the, the, the mystery of the two natures in Christ, where we start to see it come about. Jesus is in agony, he's sorrowful, he's, he's troubled. How, how do we consider these things knowing that Jesus is fully God how how can God be sorrowful and troubled how can how can Jesus pray for the maybe that's two separate questions I'll save that one talk about God being sorrowful and troubled this is where we yeah. start to wrestle with this mystery yeah so this is a mystery and I think we need to set out right here at the beginning that ultimately the answer here is to stand in awe and 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 praise the Lord uh, for his revelation of himself in the Word of God, something we can't necessarily fully understand. We can wrestle with it here, and we're going to do that here in a minute. But ultimately, we need to realize that we stand in awe of this mystery and give thanks to God uh, for his work on our behalf. Now, the, the tension here is how can God be sorrowful? Uh, the fact of the matter is he's perfect. Uh, if God is sorrowful, then that implies some sort of lack, some sort of something that he's missing that is causing him sorrow, which would then seem to imply that God is not perfect, that he's not complete in himself, that he's not whole, that there's something 
may be wrong with him. And so for God to be sorrowful and troubled would be more, in some sense, a reflection of who we are as sinful human beings and us looking at him rather than a reflection of who he is. And so the, the, the tension here, though, is that Jesus, as he's standing here, or actually falling down on his face praying, being sorrowful even to the point of death, is looking ahead of what's coming. Uh, his, his soul is troubled. He's trembling as he knows that the suffering and death is coming, what he's going to experience, uh, particularly in, in uh, the full wrath of God for the sins of mankind. His human nature here is sorrowful and troubled. And here, I think, is where the we kind of understand the tension in the mystery is, according to his human nature, Jesus can be sorrowful and troubled, even if according to his human or, or divine nature, he cannot. And so we can say such things, I mean, this goes all the way back to, the, to, the, to the very, his very uh, uh, birth, right? That we can say that God was born of Mary because in Jesus Christ, God is born of Mary. Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, is born of Mary. So also we can say of God in Jesus Christ that he trembled, that he's sorrowful, uh, that he is, he is troubled to death. Well, we can say that because of who Jesus is as both fully God and fully man. Uh, in this first prayer that he says, and we'll, we'll, we're going to come back to this in, in just a minute, but in this first prayer, Gibbs in his commentary, if I can read just a little bit from his commentary, he really gets the sense of this tension. He says, in the first prayer, Jesus will initially ask God to manifest a different plan than the one he knows will be laid out before him, even while never turning from the Father's will. However, Jesus' weakness and torment paradoxically reveal an unwavering strength. For although he trembles, he does not falter. Christ shows himself altogether faithful. He stands in contrast, especially to his faithless disciples who are not even able to stay awake and watch with him during his prayer. So this is a, a great insight from Gibbs here that we see this, this, this divine nature of Jesus Christ completely and totally dedicated to the task at hand, while also the human nature, his human soul, uh, troubled and trembling at the very task that lays before him. The, the matter that Christ here is, is both trembling and, and resolute at the same time because these two natures are united in one person. And so you're right, we can say, because of that, we can say some things that just sound ridiculous, that, that God was yeah. born, well, right? How, how is that possible? Well, it's pos possible because these two natures are united in Christ, and, and we're going to see that same mystery at play here. And I think that's that's a wonderful way of looking at it that you opened up with, that, that we need to stand in awe of this, and we need to ultimately rejoice and give thanks for what God is doing in Christ, having united these two natures in Christ for the sake of our salvation, and that that mystery, we just have to let it let it stand, and and rejoice and give thanks that God is God and, and He is working out our salvation. So so that that mystery comes into play with with I think what Christ actually prays. So the the mm -hmm. first prayer, and it, it it's the same prayer, although the, the words change slightly, but it's it's the same gist. So the first time he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So I guess the question that, that comes to mind is, is, is Jesus wavering? He knows what's going to happen. He's, he's told his disciples many times, is he looking for a way out? What, what do we make of this, Pastor Askins? You know, I, I don't think we we this is said in the sense of 
I'm trying to get out from under this. I mean, all throughout his ministry, uh, all throughout his earthly life, Jesus uh, is, is, you know, Luke says he turns his face to Jerusalem and he resolutely marches on to Jerusalem. And all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus uh, continuing to uphold and do his Father's will first and foremost. You see it, of course, right away in the temptation. Uh, you know, he, he, Satan comes to him and tempts him, tempts him. And unlike faithless Israel, unlike faithless Adam and Eve, Jesus is the one who remains faithful, even though he's sitting there having fasted for 40 days. And he's excessively hungry. He doesn't do his own will, but he only does his father's will. He chooses only to worship the father. Even as Satan comes and tempts him indirectly with, uh, with Peter, once again, when Peter tells him that he surely would not suffer and die, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have not in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So once again, all throughout his ministry, you see the divine nature of Jesus Christ remaining resolute and steadfast as he goes forward. I think once again, what we're seeing here as he prays this is an understanding of the human nature of Christ, that in this way, he's able to identify with us even in our weakness, especially in our weakness. And you see evidence of this here uh, here in this passage where he's where he's um, praying, uh, let this cup pass from me. Um, if I can uh, talk a little bit about the Lutheran witness, Pastor Apple, um, go for it. Thinking back against the temptation of Jesus, the cover for the March issue of the of the uh, Lutheran witness was a picture of Jesus after a painting of Jesus uh, after he had been fasting for forty days. And one of the reasons I loved that picture is it showed Jesus, and he looked. Uh, he looks, uh, I don't, it's not depressed, but just worn out and tired and exhausted. He's been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. He's alone. And you see Jesus in weakness. And this is not the way we're used to thinking about God, right? You look at, you look at the old gods of the Romans, right? And they're always powerful and doing all these crazy things. But here, God reveals himself in weakness as he's fasting, right? And he reveals himself in weakness as he goes to the cross. Well, we see the same revelation of God revealing himself in what is weak as Jesus is here praying to the Father, uh, you know, uh, let this cup pass from me. Now, of course, cup here, the idea of the cup is the idea of of the suffering, the wrath of God. This is a common metaphor throughout the Old Testament uh, of God pouring out his wrath uh, from the cup and drinking the, the cup of God's wrath. And this is what Jesus has in mind here. But then he concludes this prayer with a, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Once again, the divine nature coming through and saying, uh, even though I, I am fearful, even sorrowful, even to the point of death, uh, it is not my will that is done, but God's will that should be done. I and really like I think, that. Oh, keep going. Go keep going. Sorry. Okay, well, let, let me just conclude with a couple of thoughts here as we ourselves face uh, various temptations and trials and the comfort we can take from this, right? So that even there's a parallel in the sense of our new man trusts in God for everything, right? Especially as we, uh, all the things kind of going on in, in the world right now, as we're all kind of quarantined in our homes and various things like that. Who knows where, where we are at this with this? And we're afraid. We see people dying. We see rumors of all sorts of death and the possible death. And and the sinful flesh is afraid of this, right? Uh, and yet the new man longs to to cling to and have comfort in Jesus. And and we can take comfort here as we watch Jesus, even as he is is weak and sorrowful. Uh, yet he also remains faithful. Where we have failed, where uh, fears take over sometimes for us, 
and and we can't keep together our confidence necessarily all the time. We can look to Jesus as the one who did this perfectly, who was weak and sorrowful, and yet does not give up hope uh, in his Lord, in, in his Father, right? And continues to pray that his Father's will be done uh, in spite of his own fears. I, I liked the way that you, you laid that out with the the seeing God reveal himself in weakness. And, and looking at this text as another example of how God reveals himself in weakness. So it's it's not, as you said, that, that Jesus is trying to get out from under it, but we see God fully human, and, and the weakness that is involved in that, just as he experienced that in his temptation, we saw him hunger and, and thirst in other places in the gospel, we'll see the ultimate weakness of God, in in the cross and yet as paul tells us in first corinthians one that's also his that is his strength to save yeah. and so yeah to see to see this as an example of god revealing himself in weakness i think is is a, a great way of looking at it and it allows us to to keep that mystery of these two natures in christ working in concert together on the one hand we see the the weakness but on the other hand we still see the the complete resolution of our lord to go forward for for the salvation of sinners and and then just to, to point out with real quick before we take our break here, Pastor Askins, the, the matter of the cup, as you, you pointed out, this is the, the cup of God's wrath that Jesus is talking about. We've seen that cup come up earlier in the, the text of Matthew in chapter 20 with his conversation with James and John about the places on his, his right and left. Right here, the the I don't know if it's irony or or what to call it exactly, but the the contrast. On the one hand, Jesus is about to drink the cup of mm-hmm. God's wrath. Well, what has he just done for his disciples? He's given them a different cup. He's given them the cup of blessing, the cup of, of his blood, the new covenant that will bring to them forgiveness of sins. And, and to see those two things together, that Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we sinners could receive the cup of blessing in his blood, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, April 1st. We are looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 56 with Pastor Roy Askins, the managing editor of the Lutheran Witness, which is the, what's the, it's the periodical, the official periodical of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Is that a a fair way of describing the Lutheran Witness, Pastor Askins? That is a fair way of describing the Lutheran Witness. That is correct. Um, Very good. We we have actually, if I can just plug it for a second, I think it's one of the longest running uh, denominational periodicals uh, in America, believe it or not. Uh, it actually was started in 18, I want to say 82, and then the LCMS picked up in 1911. So it's we're coming up on about 100, nearly 140 years of publishing the Lutheran Witness. So it's a pretty incredible uh, uh, magazine for teaching and teaching the church. So I would encourage people to take a look at it if they have time. Thanks be to God for that, that gift of, of God to his church. So 
Pastor Askins, in our discussion here in Matthew chapter 26, uh, we, we left off on the other side of the break with, with Jesus' first prayer. Then he comes back to his disciples, those three, and, and you know, if we want to call them the, the, the inner circle, well, as you, you made the point, the, the inner circle doesn't seem to, to prove any better than the outer circle in this case. What, is, what does Jesus come back to find? He finds them sleeping. What an amazing uh, contrast to, uh, he, you know, just a few verses previous. He says, you're going to all abandon me. And they all say, no, no, we will never abandon you. Peter says, I will never abandon you. And uh, he's here praying with them and uh, simply praying. They fall asleep and cannot stay awake. It's kind of funny. What's actually, it's not really funny. It's very sad as, as he's, of course, here in Gethsemane. But an interesting insight here in terms of why they're sleeping actually comes up when he asks him the question, so you could not watch with me one hour. Uh, when you look at it, the text, it's actually entirely possible that he literally means one hour. And as we kind of look at the hours and the times of the day, it's possible that Jesus was in the garden with these disciples uh, praying for as much as two or three hours, uh, of course, late in the day. So, I mean, in some ways, it's kind of understandable how they are uh, unable to stay awake, unable to continue to watch with him as he's here out in this dark time uh, when most people would be asleep uh, praying. What's the what's the temptation that Jesus is is warning them against? He says, "Watch and pray, so that you will not enter into temptation." What's the temptation that he's talking about? You know, it, it's interesting here. He doesn't ask them to pray for him. Isn't that interesting? Uh, he's here praying. He's sorrowful and troubled, and uh, he knows what's coming. He's trembling at, at what's coming, and he doesn't say, "Pray for me." He says, "Watch and pray that you may not enter." into temptation. And I think what we have here is, of course, uh, the idea of, of temptation in general, but the temptation particularly here is the temptation that they're all going to fall to uh, at the very end of this passage in, in verse 56, where they all flee, right? Um, he, he encouraged them, stay awake, that you may not fall into temptation, that you may not fall away. Um, the Spirit is willing. You guys have expressed how desirous you are of staying here by my side, but the flesh indeed is weak. And so he encourages them with this. And then as time will tell, as we go through the rest of this narrative, uh, it becomes clear that uh, they were not able to stay awake and pray. And so also they, they will all fall away um, at the end. So, so Jesus, having instructed his disciples, then he goes away and prays a second time. Now, the, the words are a bit different. Take us into the, the second prayer there in verse 42, Pastor Askins. So we have a couple of echoes here to uh, the Lord's Prayer. So the second prayer um, uh, is goes like this. He prays, uh, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done, which is very similar to the first prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Um, and in fact, the third prayer is not even uh, the, the actual words are not given. It just says he prays saying the same words again. So you're right. They, they do all have a parallel. But it is interesting here that when he says your will be done, these are exact, the, the exact uh, words he, he uses in, in the Lord's Prayer, the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. And this is, I think, uh, an insight for us that there is in this prayer that God's will be done as Jesus is facing uh, his suffering and death here in the next 48 hours. 
a connection between our prayer, your will be done on heaven and in heaven as it is on earth, between this and then the actual completion which we see in Matthew 28, Jesus standing there at Matthew 28, telling his disciples, um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? So the will of God is being done as Jesus is here in, in, the, uh, in Gethsemane, uh, as he's preparing to suffer and die. He goes through the suffering and death such that the, the will of God is fully and completely finished in Jesus's suffering and death so that now, as a consequence of this, there is parity between heaven and earth. Now, what happens in heaven also happens on earth. There is peace between God and man because Jesus Christ, the one who does the Father's will perfectly, is now the one that ha- that speaks on behalf of mankind, that brings peace, that unites God and man, that brings peace between God and men. And so here, Jesus is saying, uh, you know, of course, the the, we, the 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 human flesh here is is trembling and fearful. This cannot pass unless I drink it. Yet he still continues to pray, "Your will be done, Heavenly Father. Uh, your will be done, not mine." And I think this is once again in the sense, not in the sense of um, uh, allowing God's will to be done, but rather that Jesus is imploring, seeking, desiring that the will of God be done, even in spite of his own uh, trembling and sorrowfulness and trouble that he's going to be that he's feeling as a consequence of his human nature. Connecting the dots like that, the will of God, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, here here Jesus prays for the will of God, and then the matter of heaven and earth in, in Matthew chapter 28, connecting those dots and seeing it all come to fulfillment in the passion, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, I find that to be a very helpful thing to keep in mind today as Christians, because questions concerning the will of God are often at the forefront of many Christians' minds. What is the will of God in this situation? What what does it mean when I pray in the third petition, your will be done? And, and we, at least in my experience, we often think about those things in terms of the things that are happening in my day-to-day life. Uh, what is mm-hmm. What is God's will for my family? What is God's will for my congregation? And we often have very specific situations in mind. But to keep this big picture of what the will of God is, that the will of God is to to give Jesus into death and resurrection to save sinners, I mean, at least for me, that provides a lot of comfort to know that, that what is, even when I can't see God's will in maybe this specific situation, I know what his will is. His will is to save me. And he gave Jesus for that purpose. And I, I I think that's a wonderful, comforting thing for us to keep in mind as Christians still today. It, it is. And that's, that's actually a great insight because sometimes when we get to asking these particular questions about what is God's will in this little aspect of my life, it sometimes leads to this idea. Did you ever see the, the movie, The Adjustment Bureau, where... Um, I think it's uh, it's um, Leonardo DiCaprio is the actor in it, and there's this a bureau that makes sure you're you're following every right step that you're supposed to go through in your life, and if you get off the right the the path that they've laid out for you, it causes all sorts of problems and chaos and whatnot. And we sometimes kind of get this idea that God has something similar for us that there's this will and plan laid out for every aspect of our lives, and if we do the wrong thing, it's all going to fall apart that we have sometimes broken his will. But if we look at the third petition, we know exactly. 
exactly what God's will is, right? We pray, how is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. The good and gracious will of God is finally and fully and ultimately finished in Jesus Christ and his suffering and death. And we continue to pray that this will is done among us as Jesus continues to break and hinder the work of Satan, the world, and our sinful flesh in our lives. This is what God's will is. And so as we're regularly gathering, uh, well, uh, digitally now through Facebook, as congregations to hear God's word preached, um, to to receive this this word proclaimed to us. Uh, this is the place where God is fulfilling and completing his will. And then from that, we live as his children. And that gives us remarkable freedom as we think in that way about how uh, God is working in our lives. So Jesus then, he, as you said, the second prayer, very similar to the first. The third prayer, Matthew doesn't record the actual words, but he says he, he, that Jesus said the same words. He goes back to his disciples and, and again, finds them sleeping. He, he wakes them up, says it, it's time, essentially. And, and I think one of the things that, that having seeing this conversation between the Son of God and the Father, it, mm-hmm. it, as we move forward, again, we're assured that what is about to happen is, in fact, the will of God, and it is the will of Jesus as well, that, that moving forward as events maybe seem out of control or out of Jesus' hands. In fact, they are not. He is the one directing them, and he's doing so according to the will of his Father, all for the salvation of sinners. Any any concluding thoughts on the, the prayers of Jesus in, in Gethsemane before we move on to the betrayal and arrest? No, no, I think you did a great job of, of summarizing how, you know, these are God's plans that are taking place. Uh, the wicked uh, the leaders, the, the the scribes and the Pharisees think they're in control. Judas thinks he knows what he's doing. We don't exactly know what he thinks he's doing, but he thinks he knows what he's doing. But what's actually happening here is is God is in control. Jesus is in control of all these things. Uh, and and it, it just goes according, continues to go according to God's plan and God's will. So as as the text moves forward, again, this is Jesus directing events, but but from maybe a human perspective, it, it would seem then that Judas is the main actor at the beginning of of the betrayal. He he comes, take us in into this scene where Judas comes, he he kisses Jesus. Why why does he use this as the sign? Yeah, you know, honestly, I'm not entirely sure. I've I've thought about this in a couple of different ways, and I think what I've come to is he's he's come with this group of of leaders from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Um, they, of course, know who he is. They've seen him preaching and teaching in the temple, uh, and yet he still says this one must be identified uh, in some way, and he gives them a sign. And so I'm wondering if maybe it's just in the in the darkness of the garden. Uh, it's hard to, or in the darkness of Gethsemane, it's hard to figure out who's who. And he's just giving the 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 crowd who has come with him a sign to say, this is absolutely certain. This is the one who you are to arrest. It's also interesting. I mean, it's such an intimate uh, gesture, right? Um, we are not necessarily as comfortable or familiar with this practice uh, in the U.S., but the idea of, of kissing uh, friends, kissing on the cheek as a, a, a sign of greeting is very common in other parts of the world, and it is a very a sign of a friendship and intimacy. And here, Judas decides to betray Jesus with a very sign of intimacy, and uh, and so he does this, and he he greets Jesus, calling him uh, Rabbi, which itself is is an interesting thing. Also, um, as we look through the Gospel of Matthew, 
um, Judas is, is the only one of his disciples that call him rabbi. If you look through the rest of the, the Gospel of Matthew, it's always a Lord. The disciples address Jesus as Lord. Uh, but the idea of rabbi or teacher is usually spoken by somebody who um, is not one of his disciples. There's usually a sense of, of hostility or tension in the narrative when the term rabbi or teacher is used. And so here, uh, Matthew or the Holy Spirit through Matthew has set off Judas as someone who's, who addresses Jesus differently, doesn't address him as the rest of the disciples do with that, that term, Lord. And we saw Judas do that already in the upper room when all the, the disciples were asking, is it I, Lord? Matthew then tells us that Judas asked, is it I, Rabbi? So we've, we've seen him do that already. A again, as, as a sign that, that he does not share the, the faith that the rest have. Now, Jesus calls him, him friend, do what you came to do. And, and it's, I've, I don't remember when I noticed this, but that word friend is, at least to our English ears, sounds like, well, why, why does Jesus call him friend? When you, <laughs> right. when you look at the, when you look at the Greek text, and maybe you, you've seen this too, Pastor Askins, that same Greek word is the word that gets used in the parable, usually we call it the parable of the workers of the vineyard, where Jesus, where the, the master hires people throughout the day. And mm -hmm. when it comes time to address those who are complaining because they didn't get paid more than a denarius, they think it's unfair. The master addresses those workers as the same word, friend. He says, friend, take, take what is yours. And it also shows up in the parable. Oh, I can't think of the title of it now. The parable, of the wedding banquet, I think is what it's usually called. Where oh, friend where, to move up higher. That's right. Yeah. yeah well, or, or yeah. And, and friend, wear your wedding clothes, right? Oh, that I think one. It, yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, twice it gets used in, in Matthew's gospel to indicate someone who maybe seems to be a part of the kingdom of God. But but in fact isn't he's not not actually wearing the wedding clothes doesn't actually doesn't actually know who the master is and the graciousness in in paying the the denarius so it, it, it's when you make those connections maybe maybe Jesus isn't being as uh, friendly if I can say it that way <laughs> as as it seems so right. so there's the interaction between between Jesus and Judas and then Jesus is arrested and then one of the disciples and we know this is Peter from other gospels uses a sword, strikes off the, the ear of the servant of the high priest, and, and Jesus says, no, no, Peter, put it, put it back. Take us into that, that interaction with, with Peter and Jesus. You know, I do think it's interesting here, and, and as, I, as I've reflected more on this, I, I have come in some sense to, to um, feel a little bit of sympathy for Peter as he later on betrays our Lord. Because if you think about it, here he has he has promised the Lord never to leave him. I will never leave you. I will die for you. And here there's this crowd of, of presumably some soldiers, uh, people from the chief priests and the scribes. They're bearing clubs. The, the crowd is large enough that later on in verse 56, they're all going to flee from Jesus. All the disciples, 11 men are going to flee from Jesus. So it's obviously a large crowd. And yet here Peter is bold enough to take his sword and say, I'm going to to do what I promised to do. And then it's Jesus that says, no, no, put this away, right? Now, of course, it still doesn't excuse his betrayal of Jesus later on. He does repent of this. Jesus forgives him. But the point I'm trying to make here is Peter, it does have a bold spirit. He just doesn't understand how the kingdom of God is going to come. He's still thinking in terms of earthly kings, earthly kingdoms, armies, powers, battles, war, defending Jesus uh, physically from, from this. 
He's not thinking in terms of what Jesus has come to do and to reveal himself in his suffering and death. And so uh, I do, in some sense, I guess, appreciate uh, Peter's vigor here. But Jesus says, no, no, put, put your sword back. All who take the sword shall perish by the sword. Now, a lot of uh, comment has gone on over this passage or this phrase from Jesus, this sentence, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Uh, some to say that Jesus had pacifist leanings. But I think we need to be careful here to take this in its context and to point out that what Jesus is saying here to Peter is, my kingdom is not a kingdom of the sword. And this remains true today. As the church, we don't coerce people into the kingdom of God. We don't take control of the government and force people to be Christians, right? Um, rather, this is the kingdom of grace. It comes by by forgiveness, by the proclamation of God's word, by uh, simple water combined with God's word and bread and wine combined with God's word, that it takes place, uh, his kingdom comes through weakness, as we're going to see Jesus and his suffering and death here in just a moment. So this is uh, this is kind of what this is what's going on here with Jesus uh, talking to Peter and pointing out to Peter, look, I could call my my father and he would send 12 legions of angels, right? 11 people would be uh, unnecessary even here because we could have 12 legions of angels. But he, he concludes uh, to Peter, if this should happen, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, it is necessary that I should suffer and die. It is necessary that I should should come in weakness to redeem the world. Yeah, the, the context is going to be, is key for verse 52, that we wouldn't just rip it out of its context and assume it's got something to say to what a government should or shouldn't do or, or how a Christian would or wouldn't participate within that government, but rather to, to recognize Jesus is bringing the kingdom apart from the sword. As, as he says in John's gospel, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my, my followers would have been fighting but that's, that's not how the kingdom of God comes. And so we want to keep those words in its context and, and on the one hand, not, not try to use them to force some sort of pacifism, but on the other hand, to take them very seriously and, and recognize that the kingdom of God does not come by force and, and, and watch ourselves because we can fall off the horse on the other side and, and miss Jesus' words there and ignore them entirely when it comes to this, this matter of violence. So I think you, you've helped us chart that course very, very well. The theme of fulfillment really comes forward here at the end of, of the text as Jesus says it twice that the scriptures are going to be fulfilled. He speaks first to, to Peter concerning the matter of the sword. Then he speaks to these crowds and he really says, look, what, what are y'all, what are y'all doing here? Wasn't I in the temple teaching? Take us into to Jesus' response to the crowds, Pastor Askin. So he comes to the crowds and he asks them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Um, Thinking here a little bit about the term robber and what does he mean here? Of course, as we know later on, Jesus is, uh, or Pilate offers up Barabbas, uh, or versus Barabbas and Jesus to the crowds in order to be let go, and people choose Barabbas. And um, in John eight, um, John eight identifies Bar or John eighteen. I apologize. John eighteen identifies Barabbas as a robber. One wonders here if this is kind of the idea. Um, or a, a connection that, that is being drawn between the texts, because, in fact, they choose the robber, the insurrectionist, <coughs> they choose the robber and insurrectionist over Jesus, right? Uh, here they have come out as, as a crowd against, against the one who's innocent, right? 
uh, whereas they are not going out after the insurrectionists. You know, the fact of the matter is, the uh, Jewish people at the time were not particularly excited about Roman rule. They weren't particularly excited about the fact that the Romans had control of what's going on. And so they're not going to come out against Jesus as an insurrectionist, um, but they in fact choose the insurrectionist, the robber, over Jesus. Um, but uh, day after day, he was in the temple teaching and they did not seize him. But all of this, he says, has taken place to fulfill the scriptures, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then it concludes there with that line, all the disciples fled and left him, right? Left him and fled, right? Of course, fulfilling his very prophecy at the very beginning of this passage that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. One of the things that's going to continue to become apparent is, is Jesus left all alone. And, and it's going to climax on the cross when he says, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we're starting to see that already here. It's going to build throughout the passion narrative. But why, why is this such an important thing to, to notice that Jesus is left alone here? Yeah. Yeah. All throughout the, the gospels, he's pictured regularly with his disciples. I mean, he starts his ministry and right away he calls disciples and he teaches them and prepares them. He sends them out as well, but then he prepares them for this very moment. And then they all scatter and flee, and he's left here um, to suffer and die alone. As you mentioned, he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and here, this is a picture of him fully taking on uh, fully taking on the wrath of God. Uh, and, and kind of the idea of the wrath of God, what does this mean for the, the what does the wrath of God mean? Um, one picture I've seen or read about uh, kind of the idea of what hell is actually comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. And now, of course, I don't think this is a full or complete picture of hell, but uh, Lewis chose to understand hell in the sense of complete and total isolation, right? That the more you advance in the kingdom of hell, the more alone, the more solitary, the more uh, separated from everything else around you, you are. Now, of course, this is not the, the full picture of hell, but the idea that uh, as the people of God, we live in this community. As the congregation, we live in this community. We live as the body of Christ, which is made up of many members, and Jesus Christ himself is the head, right? And we grow up into this body of Christ, which is a congregation, a, a group. And then, but, but Jesus, when he suffers, he suffers as one who's completely alone. And once again, getting back into this, this tension between uh, his human nature and his divine nature, how is it possible for God the Father to forsake his own son as he cries out on the cross? Uh, this is a great mystery that we must stand in awe of. But in that moment, as he's suffering on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This complete and total abandonment of God, of his, or by God, of his son, is the picture of hell. And this is what this, this starts here at this moment as the disciples all flee him and leave and he is left to face this all alone. And he faces this all alone that we might not have to be alone and face this wrath of God, but that we might one day stand before God on the last day and as, as, his, as children of God, as, as those who belong to Jesus Christ, as part of the body of Christ. The, the matter of, of being left alone, I was thinking through the, the Garden of Eden and, and what happens after humanity's sin, that they are cast away from God's presence. They are alone. Here, here we see Jesus, as you said, left alone so that, that we won't be. God abandons him so that God will not abandon us. Beautiful gospel. Pastor Askins, so with about a minute here, just, just 
summarize, wrap things up for us this morning? So here we have this this wonderful passage of Jesus uh, in prayer, the struggle between uh, his his human nature, seeing this this coming, this this terrible time coming, and yet his complete and utter confidence uh, as the Son of God, continuing on his Father's will uh, and bearing all the suffering that he's about to endure for the sake of the world. And here we can have our confidence in Jesus Christ as well that uh, he has done all this for us. You know, I look at the, the what's out there in the world. I look at all this death and mayhem and chaos that might be happening or is happening or whatever it might be, and I'm afraid. But I know that in Jesus Christ, I have the one who endured all suffering on my behalf, and I have no reason to be afraid because I am his child and he has made me his own and has promised to be with me that I might not be left alone in my own suffering and my own sorrow uh, as I face the terrors of death, whatever they might be. Pastor Roy Askins is the managing editor of the Lutheran Witness, the official periodical for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 56. Pastor Askins, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Pastor Apple. It was a great opportunity to be on and talk to you about uh, the Word of God. God reveals himself to us in weakness. In the weakness of Gethsemane, he shows his resolution to save us sinners. Jesus goes resolutely forward, even as all others flee and he is left alone, he goes forward to the cross, to his resurrection, all to win salvation for us sinners. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.